One thing that all Christian churches have in common is this, that Sunday by Sunday they meet together for worship. In a sense, uh, if you talk in business terms, the core business of the Christian church is worship. That's what we're here for. And those of you that uh, heard in your younger days the catechism will know that the question I was asked, what is man's chief end? And the answer you had to give was man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So Christian worship, and I want us just to reflect really in the light of the New Testament on the basics of Christian worship again this evening. Karl Barth, the uh, German theologian who made a tremendous impact on our thinking, writes these words, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can take place in human life. The most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can take place in human life. He goes on to point out that worship is the point where we begin to fulfil the very purpose for which we created. In its experience, we're, we're drawn up into the very experience of heaven as we join in the multitude around the throne, praising God. Whatever else we shall or shall not do in heaven, worship certainly goes on beyond this life. However, most of us have to confess that we don't find our Sunday worship like that sometimes. We don't uh, come on a Sunday and go away on a Sunday and say, that's the most momentous experience of my life. Sadly, it can even become a routine that is dull. And when that happens, I suppose most people turn to blame the preacher, begin with, or blame the leader. And when that fails, they blame the organist. And uh, these are the people that make what, what spoil our worship or fail to make it what it should believe. But I believe that to begin to talk like that misses the point of worship as far as the New Testament is concerned. It misses the nature of worship as something that is corporate, something that we do together, something that is a part of the life of a fellowship. Baptists and evangelical Christians on the whole like to say, well, we get our models from the Bible, and particularly from the New Testament. And I want us just in these moments to look at the, a couple of verses from Colossians 3 that give us a glimpse of what the worship of the New Testament church was like. Verses 15 to 17 of Colossians 3 give us a glimpse of what worship was like in New Testament times. Now, of course, in this final chapter of Colossians, as in the later chapters of most of his letters, Paul is addressing the subject of how you live the Christian life. Many of the letters of Paul begin with a setting out of Christian doctrine, but most of them, as they move through the pages of the, of the letter, move toward the end with very clear and specific and practical guidance about Christian conduct. And the, the teaching on Christian conduct there in the earlier part of chapter 3 focuses on the whole matter of living in fellowship. For you see, whenever the Bible speaks about holy living, 
It's never about living simply on a personal involvement, a personal basis. It always involves living in right relationships with other people. In Colossians 3 and verse 12, as an example, uh, we have there, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. It's again about relationships. And when Paul writes in Galatians about uh, the fruit of the Spirit, how many of those focus not upon my work, my relationship with God as a single person, but my relationship with God's people. Patience, love. Have you ever thanked God for the people that stretch your patience and say, well, that's giving me the chance to exercise that fruit of the Spirit? Verse 14 of chapter 3 also says, put on love which binds them together in perfect unity. And so it goes on to this picture of worship, and the worship is set in the context of living in community, in a fellowship of love. For you, you see, so often when we speak about worship, we speak about the, the style of worship, the form. The emphasis here is not on the particular pattern, but upon the setting, the context of a loving fellowship. The emphasis is there upon relationships within and among the people who are worshipping together. As you know, the early Christians were noted for exchanging the, the sign of peace, even greeting one another with a holy kiss. And these things filmed a part of early Christian worship. But it wasn't the act that mattered, it was the understanding that they conveyed. Lots of people, British people in particular, are not particularly happy about going around kissing people and greeting them and speaking to them and all the rest of it. We're, we're British, we're not like that. But uh, the thing that mattered in the New Testament times was not the actual doing, but the sign that it meant that I am in a right relationship with the people around me. And I suppose as we come to worship, and uh, certainly this is echoed in 1 Corinthians as well, as you come to worship, we ought not to ask just about my personal relationship with God, as it were, on the vertical sense, but to say, am I still at odds with, one, with someone else? Am I still bearing a grudge? Am I still failing to be reconciled to this one or that one? Have I made the effort to do something, to make an apology if I ought to? Or perhaps we more likely have to ask the question, have I really tried to get to know this person better? Have I shown an interest in that person whose needs I, I know or I ought to know? Have I shown that I care in what is happening in their lives? One of the advantages of being a travelling preacher as I am and have been for a long time now is that I'm always aware that the impact of a service doesn't depend on me alone. What is happening in the, sh in the fellowship, 
the prayerfulness, the expectancy of the church will shape it. The service is, in a sense, prepared, not only by what I do in, in the study and in prayer and wrestling with the truth. The service is made by the relationships of the people who come to worship. Barry White, who was the principal of Regent's Park College at one time, had a sermon that was entitled, How to Make Your Minister a Better Preacher. And it had all to do with the idea that he will be a better preacher if you pray for him. And if the worship of the church is experienced within the setting of a good Christian fellowship. This pattern of right relations is summed up in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace, his peace, his harmony, be what I suppose literally ought to be translated, the referee, the umpire, the ruler among you. The first condition then for vibrant Christian worship is a fellowship of people at peace. The second thing we want to notice there, it's verse 16, this is here, that at the centre of our worship is the word of God. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Bible is to have a central place in the worship of God's people. But it's Bible teaching that is applied, it's Bible teaching that is worked out in the way we live goes on to say there in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. When Christians meet together for worship, it is so that they may hear and receive the word of God and apply it in their lives. It may well be that that word of God will come from the preacher, the leader of worship, but it may also come from the people who share the service with you, the people with whom we meet during the week. The application may emerge as we talk about the, the truth of God. Because you see, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you would teach and admonish one another. We're a bit reluctant at times to speak about our understanding of Scripture or how we're going to apply this in our lives. Oh yes, we may talk about the preacher and may talk about the sermon. There used to be a phrase, have you had the preacher for dinner? And many a minister has been had for dinner you know, on a Sunday. And uh, it would be very often taking the sermon apart. But not so often do we look at the message and say, no, not did he do it well or did he do it badly, was he boring or whatever. How are we going to put that into practice? How am I going to apply that to my life during the days of this week? For you see, Christian worship has a pattern. It's about hearing God's word, receiving his truth, and responding to it. This is the pattern set for us in the Old Testament. That Psalm 96 that we read earlier in the service is a great illustration of this. The psalmist says, uh, declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among the people. It says, tell about what God has done. And then it goes on to say, sing to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, the glory due his name. Bring an offering. 
God's word sets out what he has done. God's word spells out his truth. And we respond through song and prayer, through giving, through commitment. Our response will often be in music. Christians, for Christians, music has always been an important thing. It's something we inherited from the Jewish tradition. For the Jews sang in the synagogue. And it's interesting that the first description of a Christian meeting from a secular Roman historian in the first century says, they met at dawn to sing a hymn to Christ as God. They met together their early morning worship. It had to be in the early morning because their Lord's Day was not a holiday. They met together to sing a hymn to Christ as God. And Paul here mentions singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. The psalms included the Old Testament psalms with which we are familiar. The psalms are a great treasury of Christian worship. A great treasury of Christian worship. Indeed, our Baptist forebears used not to sing anything else. They used not to sing hymns, they used not to sing what we choose to call songs, they sang the psalms. And they didn't like singing what they called human hymns. They preferred to sing the psalms and the psalms alone. But we sing the psalms, and and whether we sing them or read them, the psalms are a great treasury of praise and worship. But we think think, uh, uh, that our hymns matter. But when the words of truth are joined with music, good music, it's a very powerful part of our personal experience. We know that advertisers know the place of a jingle that repeats the name of their product. But the way we think about God, the way we pray, the way we live to some extent is shaped by the hymns we sing. Because most of us are are not, shall we say, great theologians. We're not articulate about our faith. We know what we believe and we know how to pray or learn how to pray from singing our hymns. They're the things that we remember. It's often been said that Baptists don't say creeds, they sing hymns. And there's a certain sense in which that's true. Let's think, for example, and here's the simplest and the example I never tire of using, that if we were asked what we understand by the cross, we wouldn't be able to give a a, a long description of the doctrine of the atonement. But we most certainly, almost certainly, would be able to say, he died that we might be forgiven. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. Truth in simplicity. Truth remembered not only in words, but in music. And I think that's so important. Let's be sure that we get it right, that we hear God's word and echo and respond to that word in a song that has scriptural and true foundations. I sometimes go to a place where they, or go to places, where they say to me, well, we'll have a time of worship 
and then you can read the Bible and the sermon. I think to myself, you've got something wrong here. They're really saying, can we sing some songs and then get down to the real business of worship? I don't know. The Bible first. The song is a response, an echo to the word of what God is speaking to us. Historically, our free church buildings uh, had in their architecture the word of God at the centre. If you ever come to Colchester, to Old Lane Baptist Church, when you go into the church there, you'll see there is a, a very large pulpit. A very large pulpit. Uh, and, and some people would uh, dearly delight to get rid of it. And, uh, you know, I have a certain sympathy with that, but not altogether. Uh, and uh, I think, well, yes, I understand that we don't like it architecturally, perhaps. But what it stands for does matter. That it should be the word of God, that it's the centre of our worship. I'm not that concerned about the way buildings are set out, though I think it's important to think about it. But let the emphasis in worship be where it belongs, in the word of God and the people of God around the world. But of course, through it all, the celebration of God's grace is found through thanksgiving. Verse 15 says... Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and be thankful. Sing, says verse 60, with gratitude in our hearts. This sense of gratitude to God is a sense of gratitude for all that God has done for us. And it's important to realise that when Paul is talking about being grateful to God for all that he's done for us, he's not just thinking about the fact that we have food to eat and clothing to wear and so on. He begins by speaking about the fact that we are, he says therefore in verse 12, 12, therefore as God's chosen people dearly and loved. That's why we ought to be so grateful. Because we're God's people, the people whom he loves. God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. We have no right to claim that. That's the wonder of God's mercy towards us. Forgive, says Paul, as the Lord has forgiven you. Of course, it's not surprising, and uh, you know, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, that when we come to lead a prayer of thanksgiving or pray in our own homes about thanksgiving to God, we naturally think, well, thank you, Lord, uh, for today. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for these good things. Thank you for food and shelter for the... A good, for good health and all these other things. It is right to be grateful for that. We're privileged to live in the place we do. But let's never forget, in our gratitude for God's material blessings, that our greatest blessing of all is to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. To know that we are his holy, dearly loved people. Because it's when we recognise that that we shall be moved to care about the needs of others. You see, it's rightly being observed these days in in, uh, secular circles that it is Christian people who are more likely to give to charities. It is Christian people who are to be be found at, at the forefront of a great deal of voluntary service 
they, people may dismiss our faith, but they recognise that this faith prompts believers to action, to action on behalf of others. And it's true. And what is there on the level of our response to giving to people in need ought to be there in our attitude to people around us as well. If we really recognise how grateful we need to be to God that he has loved us, that he's saved us, that he's given us new life in himself, isn't it right that we should thank him and tell other people about it? And the final note of thanksgiving is there. In really in what is the final note about our worship? That worship is worked out in what we do. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. This probably refers in the first instance to the context of worship, to what we do in the Lord's Supper, what we do in remembrance of him. But I'm sure it has the reference to the whole of life. Whenever we come to Christ, when we're baptised, we're baptised in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we put our lives under his rule, under his authority. And surely, therefore, the whole of life is under that authority, that same authority. Our life, in the way we conduct our business, in the life, our life in the way we conduct our family life, our life in the neighbourhood, in the community, in amongst the people we meet. Worship doesn't end when we move from the church building in that special environment to go on serving God in our daily living. We're called to worship. And the opportunity and the enrichment of worship is a very precious thing. Worship that's grounded in a loving fellowship. Worship that's focused on the word of God. Worship that leads us to respond to God's truth in in music and song and conduct. Worship that sends us out to live for Christ in the days of the coming week. So may our service, our worship this evening, enrich us personally. Most of all, may it give glory to God. And let's go on giving glory to God when we go out there, back home and back to work.